Hi everybody, Pete Sardis for The Lore You Know, and today we are talking about episode four of Hulu's miniseries, The Dropout. This is your only warning, spoiler alert. We are talking about what happened in the episode, and I'm gonna talk about what's true, what's true-ish, and what's false. But before we do that, as always, if you like the episode, give me a thumbs up. If you're enjoying the series, please subscribe to our channel, and as always, please leave me questions and comments below. Okay, so let's talk about episode four entitled Old White Men, which seems to be a, um, a play on Elizabeth Holmes' ability to impress and just kind of pull the wool over old white men. This episode starts with the Walgreens deal, and I'll share with you that I did some research after watching this episode, and it looks like the show is very accurate in how the Walgreens deal with Theranos actually happened. But I will tell you, again, uh, they have a little bit of dramatic effect and there is some creative license they've taken, obviously, to fit into a miniseries. What is portrayed to have happened relatively quickly between Theranos and Walgreens actually took about three years. And I'll walk you through what really happens. Elizabeth Holmes wound up meeting Dr. Jay Rosen, who was Walgreens' head of health innovations at a conference back in 2010. The discussions between a partnership between Theranos and Walgreens didn't really materialize until sometime in 2011. Yes, I believe Project Beta was the codename uh, for the Theranos-Walgreens deal. As you know, the concept was that Theranos was going to place wellness centers inside of a number of Walgreens stores so that people could come in, get their blood tests taken on the Edison machine and go about their business. The concept obviously being to revolutionize the way that blood tests are done. There is a note inside of the episode, kind of a side note, it happens relatively quickly. They talk about Express Scripts. And what had happened was Walgreens had Express Scripts, which was an a way for a doctor to send a prescription directly to the pharmacy. So the concept of Walgreens being on the edge of technology was something that they were pushing towards, uh, especially during this time frame. So what I don't think is true is the way that the episode portrays the executives of Walgreens in the episode. And what I mean by that is if you watch them throughout the episode, they seem to be really excited and they're giddy about, uh, you know, almost to a point where it's corny. I don't think that the executives at Walgreens were giddy. I don't think that they were um, so impressed wanting to do a deal that they totally walked away from all common sense. Um, I, I think what did happen though is there were a number of things that occurred over the course of the few years that they were working on this deal that, I, that gave some credibility to Theranos in the eyes of Walgreens specifically. One of the things in the show that Dr. J, uh, how he refers to himself, talks about is he is questioning whether there's FDA approval for the Theranos Edison machine. And now let's be clear. The Theranos technology at some point did have FDA approval. They had class two approval, and I'll be honest, I'm not gonna try to split hairs about what the different classes of FDA approvals are, but there at some point was a class two uh, approval for the vial where the blood was stored. Now, of course, Theranos taught it they had class one approval, you know, years before they actually had the approval. But what did exist, and I believe a lot of the people in this industry knew what there was a big loophole in the FDA regulations. And that loophole basically said, if you are testing blood, for example, but there is a certified lab and everything goes to that certified lab, you really don't need any additional approval to collect 
uh, samples anywhere outside of that lab. And I think that Theranos recognized that loophole. I think it is a loophole that existed for a long time before this, at least from the, the mid 80s. And frankly, I don't think the FDA took steps to either enforce or to try to close this loophole until after the Theranos situation broke out late, obviously later in 2015, 2016. So what does that mean? It means that I believe the Theranos folks spoke to the Walgreens people and the Walgreens people recognized that this wasn't illegal. They recognized that this is something that falls within this gray area that this industry uh, works in. So that's uh, kind of where we are regarding how the timing of Theranos and Walgreens deal goes through. Now let's be real. Did Walgreens bypass their review committee? I don't know. I think that they probably did take some shortcuts uh, in over the course of a couple of years because as we know, the CFO for Walgreens did want to check out Theranos. He did want something solid from them because again, you're talking about people's blood work. You're talking about a humongous company with a great reputation. They want to protect that. But ultimately, I believe they had to have cut some corners um, and I'll walk through where I think the corners get cut. The next big scene in this episode is the big meeting at Theranos, where you know Ther the uh, Walgreens executives walk into the Theranos space and here comes Elizabeth Holmes with her green juice in hand saying, welcome to Theranos. The meeting did in fact happen. Uh, Kevin Hunter was hired by Walgreens. And, and let's talk about Kevin Hunter for a second because I think he is also portrayed in a little bit of a, of a ditzy light in, in this particular episode. And I don't think this man is a, an idiot by any stretch of the imagination. Kevin Hunter grew up in the pharmacy business. His parents actually owned a pharmacy. Uh, he knew about labs because he kind of did this for a living. And at some point he had opened his own private lab consulting firm. So this was not something that should have been strange to him, meaning to be able to go inside of a facility, look at the stuff and make sure, yes, this works, yes, that works. What did happen um, is that he did an expose with a, um, a journalist a couple of years after all of this really took place back in 2011 timeframe. And his representation was, it all felt kind of weird because he showed up and they took him out to dinner at three o'clock in the afternoon at some really expensive place, which as we know from uh, following the Theranos trial was very normal for Elizabeth Holmes and the Theranos executives to wine and dine investors, people that they felt were important, obviously the Walgreens folks and Mr. Hunter. So let's talk about the real events that Chris Hunter told us about as opposed to what is portrayed in episode four. Now, I will say that for the most part, Chris Hunter does corroborate the, what I would call really weird things that happened at Theranos. Specifically, he does corroborate that he never was allowed to speak to anyone at Theranos. He also corroborated that he was, he and other executives basically from Walgreens were escorted to the bathrooms. And when the investigative journalist kind of pressed him on, is like, well, who escorted you? And he's like, it was Sonny Balwani. So think about that. Every time you go to the bathroom or every time you, you know, get up for a cup of coffee or a glass of water or whatever, Sonny Balwani gets up, walks you to wherever it is you're going, waits for you, and then walks you back. Obviously kind of odd. Even in a startup environment where everything is super confidential, I, I still think that's a little bit odd to walk people to the bathroom. Part two that he says, he did never see the lab. Although in real life he was provided with documentation, but what he said was, 
he could not objectively verify the information and the claims that Theranos was making because again, he never had actual access to the Edison machine and all of the, you know, the components and the results. And I think we know why. Ultimately, he did have a conference with the Walgreens executives and he did tell them that he was very skeptical about the Theranos promises because he could not verify them. Regardless, Walgreens decides to kind of put him on the sidelines and I think they took his opinion in stride but decided to go forward on the deal anyway. So let's talk about the real Theranos Walgreens deal. For those of you that don't know, we did talk about this in our series previously, but it was supposed to be a $140 million investment by Walgreens into Theranos. That $140 million included a $40 million convertible note, which was supposed to become equity, meaning uh, Walgreens was gonna be able to take $40 million of that money and turn it into Theranos stock, You know, obviously in the future when the company went public. The plan was to put 41 wellness centers into Walgreens locations around the country, and obviously they were gonna to try to do blood testing uh, in those remote locations. Um, this started in 2013, and it doesn't go south until Walgreens follows a lawsuit against Theranos in 2016. The Walgreens lawsuit against Theranos was basically them wanting their $140 million back, Ultimately, they did receive $30 million in a settlement back from Theranos and the executives at Walgreens, I think they did the right thing here, wound up invalidating 31,000 tests done on the Edison machine from 2014 and 2015. And that was done again in 2016, right about the time that the lawsuit started. So that's kind of the reality of how the Walgreens deal worked out. And again, I think they did a good job in the episode because they only got so much time to portray this. But I'll understand that this took years. This was not a matter of they showed up one day, got some lunch at three o'clock in the afternoon at a fancy restaurant and made a deal. So let's go on. Let's talk about Ian Gibbons for a second. Ian Gibbons was the head of chemistry and the chief scientist for Theranos. But before he joined Theranos in 2005, kind of early on in the, in the timeline of Theranos, he had been in the diagnostic and therapeutics industry for about 30 years. This guy's well-respected, he knows what he's doing. Um, he does go to Channing Robertson in 2010. If you remember, Channing Robertson was Elizabeth Holmes' professor who then became a board member of Theranos. And he did express back in 2010 that he was very concerned about the technology because obviously he knew it didn't work. It was not reliable. It was not doing the things that Elizabeth Holmes was touting that it could do. His wife, meaning Mr. Gibbon's wife, actually confirmed this subsequently. And she said that she, he would come home and he would confide in her that nothing was working at Theranos. So what happens in the show is, I believe, very accurate. He goes and talks to Channing Robertson and says, hey, I got these problems. Within a day or so, Elizabeth Holmes does fire him for that conversation. He's escorted out of the building. Now, again, a little bit of creative license on the part of the people at uh, Hulu. Was he hired back? Yes. Did it happen overnight? No. Does he get a, like a chair in the, uh, you know, in the, wherever that common area room is? I don't know about that. But what we do know is he never got his old, his old job back. What wound up happening is he was brought back as a technical consultant and he was consulting the team that he used to lead uh, and he had a significantly reduced set of duties that he was responsible for. So 
I, I think they recognized there was a problem with him, so they kind of carved him into a block where he could not be a problem, you know, especially thinking about the fact there were whistleblowers at this point starting to materialize. What happens to poor Ian Gibbons is horrible. In 2011, last episode, we talked about the Fuies, and I'm sorry, I can't pronounce this man's name, lawsuit. Uh, remember Holmes's neighbor, and he, there was a lawsuit between the two companies about uh, the patent that he had produced that Theranos needed in order to be able to, you know, to do business. He thought he was going to be able to force Theranos to buy him out. That lawsuit culminated uh, in a, a subpoena that was issued to Ian that lawsuit at some point culminated to a point where Ian was given a subpoena. That subpoena was requiring him to show up within a few days to testify about what he knew about the tech, basically. Ian had been told by the Theranos people they did not want him to testify. I think that concerned him and it caused him a lot of stress. At some point, it is rumored, I cannot confirm it, but I, I've seen this allegation in more than one place that the lawyers for Theranos actually reached out to him and provided him a doctor's note and basically told him, you can modify this doctor's note to make it work so you don't have to show up. That's unethical. I can't imagine real, ethical, you know, legitimate lawyers ever doing something like this. But, you know, again, it's been, I've read this, I've seen this in multiple locations. So I'm not saying it is true, I'm not saying it's not, but I could see how something like that would put a lot of stress on a legitimate scientist. Ultimately what happens is the day before his testimony, Ian does take an overdose of his medications and he uh, takes them down with alcohol. His wife finds him the next morning barely breathing on the floor of the bathroom. They rush him to the hospital, but unfortunately within a couple of days, he basically was an organ failure. His liver shuts down and he dies. You know, obviously a terrible, circumstance. I think that Ian Gibbons' family is upset that either the prosecutors did not bring some sort of charges because of that suicide uh, causing him to kill himself over the stress of having to testify and potentially lie for Theranos. I think a lot of the patients also felt the same way when the jury returned not guilty verdicts on their counts. I, I just don't feel that they felt that they were important. I believe that Mr. Gibbons' family feels the same way against uh, the government for not prosecuting something for his death. And that's pretty much where the scene concludes. Ultimately, we kind of get into the closing scene with Elizabeth Holmes sitting in the office of George Shultz, the former Secretary of State of the United States and well world-renowned diplomat. And I'm guessing this is where the, uh, the series is gonna build on his influence and the things that he was able to do for Theranos and probably including introducing his grandson into the mix. So with that, if you enjoyed the episode, please give me a thumbs up. If you're enjoying this series, please subscribe. And as always, leave me questions and comments below. If there's something in the episode that happened that I didn't talk about that you want to know more about, tell me about it below and I'll see if I can get you the information that you need. So with that, we'll see you soon. Thanks for watching this episode of The Lawyer You Know. If you like this content, please share it with your friends. Make sure you subscribe to our page and like our videos. If you want some interaction, get in the comments and we'll be sure to get back to you. If you want to know any more information about our firm or this page, you can find out in the description or visit tragoslaw.com. We post multiple times throughout the week, so make sure you hit that bell so you can get the notification and not miss out on the next episode.